take a seat. Would you bow your heads and pray for me? Lord knows I need it this time during the service. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, it's just awesome to think that you are our Father. That in love, you predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters to yourself. That you desire a family. We know that you don't build buildings, that your nation is a nation of people. And as we discuss the family this morning, I ask that your spirit would empower me to speak powerfully, to teach us about the importance of the family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How many people in here are kind of maybe, or maybe TV watchers, like watching TV or watch movies and stuff like that? I mean, okay. I haven't seen this show, but I know it was very, very popular. Modern Family. Who's seen it? Okay. It's an American television family sitcom. It ran for 11 seasons. If any show goes for 11 seasons, that tells you a couple things about it. It's on ABC. It follows the lives of three diverse family setups in suburban Los Angeles. The nuclear family, a blended family, and a same-sex family. For a show to run for 11 seasons, it means that it was not, or that it was, not only continuously popular, but maintained a loyal fan base. Now, the show won the Emmy Award for Outstanding Comedy Series in each of its first five years, and the Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series four times. It won a total of 22 awards from 75 nominations. And being on the air for 11 years, it was ABC's longest-running comedy series, Modern Family. In an article entitled, Five Ways Modern Family Has Changed How We Look at Families, Anastasia Catone writes how a show that was once, and that's the key word, once, considered controversial, uh, had become a staple of a modern television. And the author unveils America's changing understanding of the definition of family. She writes, over the years, the ideals and expectations of families have changed drastically. 50 years ago, the ideal family dynamic was that of a man, a woman, and at least two children. Men and women were expected to settle down, have children, and remain together for the rest of their lives. However, as times, gender roles, and acceptance of different sexualities have changed, so too have typical family dynamics. And the author goes on to list five ways the show has portrayed the shift in family ideals over the years and encouraged society to be more accepting of familial differences. I'm just going to go over three of them briefly. The first point that she makes is homosexuality. Two of the main characters uh, were gay, working toward getting married. Now listen to this. This is how she prescribes the, the main father figure, who is the main character in the series. Um, Jay Pritchett, he could be defined as a standoffish conservative patriarch. So every male in here that is, believes in a nuclear family and is a conservative, that's you. Who was initially against the relationship, the homosexual relationship of his son, and refused to give any type of support to the couple. As times have changed in the United States, older generation folk, folks, that's you. Like Jay, Jay Pritchett's the main character, have had to become more accepting of homosexuality as they began to experience it in their own homes and families. The undying love of a father that a father holds for his son is what makes Jay realize that his own views on homosexuality are irrelevant when it comes to the happiness of his son, Mitchell. Unconventional relationships is the next point she brings up. 
In addition to me, and again, this is the conservative father figure, crotchety, Jay Pritchett has also divorced and remarried. Years ago, society stigmatized divorce as something akin to a character flaw. However, as the importance of social decorum has loosened, divorce has become increasingly accepted. I say to this lady that is writing this article, have you ever been in an office dealing with a family that is suffering from divorce? She blows it off as if it is a pain-free event. Is there anything good that comes from divorce? Third point she makes, the impact in the family, is that women who take on husband-like characteristics, the relationship between Claire, who is Jay's um, daughter in this sitcom, and her husband, Phil Dunphy, is unconventional in several ways. Now watch this. Claire is a CEO of her father's company, and Phil is a realtor. Claire is high, strong, and a control freak. I don't think many women would like to hear that description of femininity, would they? How about this? The husband, Phil, is a soft-hearted goofball. I hate to say it, those stereotypes are pretty accurate. In many traditional marriages, here we go, the man is typically the one, now listen to this, who enforces the rules, calls all the shots, and is stern and unforgiving. That is the role of the traditional husband. While the woman is typically forgiving, empathetic, and the doting parent. However, the relationship between Claire and Phil is reversed. While Phil can almost be considered one of the children, that's the male traditional father figure. Passive weak, just like a child. Claire is the parent who is constantly enforcing rules, controlling every detail in her children's lives, and being the breadwinner. Modern family uses the dynamic of this relationship to show that every husband-wife relationship fits a that not every husband-wife relationship fits a traditional mold of older generations. So, homosexuality, divorce, and sex role reversal are now affirmed by our society for the family. Now, as much as I am being pretty emphatic about this point, I cannot deny that fact. This is the world that we live in. I don't like it, but we take the world as it is. My question for us this morning is, how does the world's definition of family compare to what the Bible states, and how is the institution of the family doing living by the world's definition of family? So get your Bibles out. We're going to work hard this morning. Let's talk about the biblical definition of family. We're going to start in the very, very, very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of, of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis chapter 1, the very first book in the Bible. So according to the Bible, God himself ordained the family as the foundation of human society. Family is the foundation of human society. Do you hear me on that? We see as well from that passage that the family was God's first earthly institution. Was there government at this point in time in history? Was there church at this point in time in history? Nope. He ordained marriage in the family as the basic building blocks of society. This Judeo-Christian 
ethic and view of the family is worldwide recognized outside of the church, okay? This is a, a basic Western civilization all around the world recognized that the family is the building block of society. And what we read in the Bible specifically is that the family is to reflect the image of God because we were created in his image. That's the purpose of the family, to reflect the image of God. Also to re- reproduce that image, his image, worldwide through what? Children. Each child, each person is made in the image of God. So we reflect his image, we reproduce his image through children, and finally we exercise his rule through the divinely created institution of the family to be a blessing to society, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's the family. You with me so far? Reflect, reproduce, and rule. Three R's. Kind of so just kind of maybe quicker for you to understand that. Now, turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. Eighteen to twenty-four, chapter two. Then the Lord God said, "It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him." So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Think about that for a second. All of the living creatures in the world. Adam had to name. You know how he was able to do that, by the way? Obviously, he was smart, but you know why he was so smart? The effects of sin hadn't taken place yet. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there is not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." Here's what I want you to hear me about. Just listen to me. That the goodness of creation emerges in the main theme of Genesis. How many days did it take God to create everything? Six days. What did he do in the seventh day? And after every, at the end of every chapter, what does it say? After God created it, he what? Said it was good. It's repeated, that phrase, God saw that it was good six times as Scripture describes the successive days of the creation week. But in Genesis 2.18, we read that all of a sudden, what? What does verse 18 say? It is not good that man should be alone. That verse stands out starkly in the biblical creation story. Every aspect, just think of this, of the universe, the entire universe was finished. Every galaxy, every star, every planet, every rock, every grain of sand... Every tiny molecule was already in place. All the species of living things had been created. Adam had already given names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But there was still one glaring, unfinished aspect of creation. There was no, not found for Adam a helper that was suitable to him or comparable to him. Adam was alone in need of a suitable mate. Therefore, God's final act of creation, the last thing he does on the sixth day, the crowning step that made everything in the universe perfect was accomplished by the forming of Eve from Adam's rib. Then he brought her to the man and performed the first marriage. And by that act, God established the family for all time. The Genesis account says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This, the, the creation of the family and marriage is affirmed in the New Testament. Just listen to Matthew 19, 3 through 7. Matthew 19, 3 through 7. 
The Pharisees came up to Jesus, remember this, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what is Jesus quoting? Genesis chapter 2. He's underscoring the sanctity and the permanence of marriage as an institution, as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. Now we turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. That's, go to your Bible, go to the middle, make a right. Towards the end of the Bible, you'll find a small letter written by Paul called Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his own body. Here we go, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is Paul quoting? Genesis chapter 2, the creation of the family in the very beginning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. It goes on to describe, summarize everything. Husbands, each you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now he goes to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So he completes the family. Mother, father, husband, wife, and children. Obey, why? That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. That's the blessing. But fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But once again, my point is this. We see Scripture underscoring the sanctity and the permanence of marriage between a man and a woman as a divinely created institution called the family. But there's something else here, too, I want you to see. This is, this is in great detail, by the way. Paul defines the role of a husband, the role of a wife, and the role of children for a biblically-based family, and they are to mirror his image as a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the family was the trinity. Father, mother, children. And when the family functions by this definition, when the roles are played out in the family as God has prescribed, God blesses society. Now, knowing this, Satan's first attack was on the family. Go back in the very beginning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. My plan is to keep you busy going through the Bibles to keep you awake, okay? Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Watch what he does. That is Satan. And this is in the very beginning. I don't know how long Adam and Eve were together before this happened, but they're still in the Garden of Eden, walking with God, having all these blessings. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, meaning Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. So what did Satan do? How did he lead humanity into sin? Well, he ignored God's design for the family. He bypassed the head of the family. Who's the head of every family? The husband, the man. He's the leader. He bypassed Adam, and he tempted Eve to do what? Usurp Adam's position as the head of the relationship and to take leadership. So the roles got reversed. Now Adam, who was with her, apparently passively stood by and allowed this to happen. And mankind fell into sin. So the fall of man was a case of sexual reversal. We've heard me talk about that before. But it was also an attack on what? The family. Now listen to me. What the rest of the Bible tells us is that when the structure of the family is in confusion, it breaks down and destruction reigns. Just look at Adam's family. After the fall of man, they're kicked out of the garden, and what happens? They start a family, but this confused family structure results in rebellious children committing crimes. What happens? Cain kills Abel. And Satan continues this, his attack on the family. Eventually, he sends evil spirits to cohabitate with the daughters of men, corrupting society. It's in Genesis chapter 6. In society, what happens to it? It breaks down so much to such an extent that God has to hit the reset button. He destroys the world by a flood. How does God start over again? With a family. He started with a family, Adam and Eve. He starts over with another family, Noah and his family. Tragically, as Satan continues his attack on the institution of the family, humanity falls into the same pattern. Just listen to this. This is Isaiah chapter 3, starting in verse 12. It says, My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. In fact, go there. Go to Isaiah chapter 3. I need to, this is an important point I need to bring up here. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 3. This will be harder to find in the middle of the Bible. Go to Psalms and make a right. The prophet Isaiah chapter 3. God is speaking through Isaiah the prophet, and he says this, My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. In verse 25, Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty, she shall sit on the ground. So God, speaking to Isaiah, introduces a new puppet, I'll call it, that Satan uses in the attack on the family. My question is this, who is confusing the people and leading them down the path to destruction? What does the text say? Pretty much all my questions are basically go back and read what the text says. I'm trying to teach us to get to the plain meaning of the text. This is not a secret. What does the text say? The guides, the elders, and the princes of the people. You see that? That's blatant right there. You look confused. Do you see that? Who's leading the people? Well, it says the guides. See that? They're guides of what? 
Your guides mislead you. Verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. The elders and princes of the people, the, the guides, they're the leaders. Let me rephrase that so we'll understand it. The group of people that he's referring to here are the government. They're the leaders. The princes, the elders, the guides. The government replaced God's definition of the family. Look at what happens to a society when the government redefines family. The family is thrown into confusion. Children become what? Rebellious. They're the oppressors. Women abandon their biblical role, they're ruling over men. Men become passive and weak and they're destroyed. See that? The whole structure of society collapses. Why? Because the family's in chaos. And that brings the destruction or the judgment of God against the nation. Now, this passage shows us that when the government redefines what God has already defined, the government is in conflict with God. And God responds in judgment. He gives the society over to what they want. And of course, that inevitably leads to destruction, and it's basically Romans 1, judgment, all over again. Remember that from last week? So the nation only survives if the family survives. Are you with me so far? The institution of the family must survive. But when the government undermines the family as God created it to be, you think God's going to bless that? Will the nation be healed? Of course not. Was crime going to go down? No way. Will there be order and civility but be restored to society? No. Maybe you saw some of the video of what went on in Philadelphia this week. Young people looting. You'll find out at the end of this sermon why. Where are the parents? Particularly, where's the father? The 2020 Democratic Party platform states they want to heal the soul of America. Folks, that will never happen until they do two things. Put God back in their platform and in society and embrace God's definition of marriage. Well, why? Because the family is the foundation. And the foundation is cracked. You know that, right? The foundation is cracked and society is crumbling. So what happens when God's removed from society? I grew up in that. We've all grown up. We've, we've taken God out of society. Turn to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Because the prophet Malachi issues a warning. And you're going to see the same pattern as we've been going through these different topics that the Bible addresses that are before us in this election. Unfortunately and sadly, it's the same pattern. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. I'll give you a full 30 seconds to find this one because it's not easy to find. It's a small book. God bless these two. They're already there. Now, mind you, verse 6 is the last verse of the Old Testament. It's the last thing God says to his people. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's a reference to John the Baptist. And he will, what? Turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with what? A curse, a decree of utter destruction. Again, the Old Testament, the last verse of the Old Testament, it ends with a curse. And Malachi 4, 6 says that God will strike the land with a curse. Why will we strike the land with a curse or bring utter destruction? The family is in chaos. What's happening? Are the, father, are the hearts of the fathers for the children? No. Are the hearts of children to their fathers? No. The family is in chaos. And when a culture has families that have failed, the culture suffers. Are you seeing that point? Okay. Now, Nehemiah understood this. Okay? You need to understand this. I need to understand this. 
Just listen to what Nehemiah said to the people as they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, why do you say nobles and officials first? That's the leadership. As leadership goes, so goes the country. As leadership goes, so goes any organization. That's the government. He's saying to the government, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for what? For your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight for what then? The family. He says, fight for the family. Well, why? Well, Satan wants to undermine the family. Well, why? Why does Satan want to undermine the family? He wants to destroy God's creation. He wants to destroy society. So, logically, think this through. If we save the family, then what do we save? If we save the family, what do we save? Society. You understand me? You want to save the nation? I mean, how many think the nation is in a good place? How do you save the nation then, according to the Bible? You save the family. Exactly. So the saving of the family is the saving of the culture, the society, the nation. How do we as Americans do that? Well, we do this by confronting the government through our vote. That's one way we do it. I.e., Christians are to be pro-family and vote to elect officials who hold to a biblical definition of family and marriage. It's that simple. Are you with me so far? So let's talk about the government and the family. There are three institutions that God has created, according to the Bible, within human society. The family, the state, and the church. The family, the state, and the church. Each institution has a sphere of authority with jurisdictional, jurisdictional limits that must be respected. For example, God has not granted the government or civic rulers of authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. So, recently, when any government or official issues orders that regulate worship, such as bans on singing, caps on attendance, or prohibitions against gatherings and services, they step outside the legitimate bounds of their God-ordained authority. You guys can relate to that, right? Similarly, God has not granted the government or civic rulers authority over the family. Who created the institution of the family? God did, okay? Who owns the family then? God. So logically, he defines how the family is structured and how it functions. And we went over that in those verses that we went through earlier. Now since marriage is to be the first step in establishing family, God created the institution of marriage and he defines how marriage is structured and functions. Are you with me so far? Okay. That being said, let me draw some conclusions based upon the scriptures and observations about our society. Okay? So the Bible teaches that it is the role of government to promote and protect the family as God created it to be. You'll find that out when we look at the, the party platforms and their policies. One party gets it, one party doesn't. Number two, the Bible teaches that it is not the role of government to be the family. They're separated, separate institutions. Family can't play the role of government. Church can't play the role of family. You got the point I'm, I'm making here. Are you with me so far? Number three, today the government thinks it owns the family. It has a right to define the family differently than how God defines the family. And today the government, number four, thinks it owns marriage. It has a right to define marriage differently than how God defines marriage. So when any entity, whether it be an individual or a government or even the church, sadly, yes, even parts of the church, they decide that the family should be something different than what was created to be by God, you forfeit the blessings 
that are to come through the family to society. And you only bring confusion and destruction. And this is a problem facing society today. You know this by experience. What are men doing? Well, we've redefined manhood to the way we want it to be. And when men act in accordance to their misguided, redefined manhood, since he's the head of the relationship, the God-given head, there are consequences, and confusion ensues. And the result, sadly, women have to respond, and they redefine womanhood to what they want womanhood to be. And this, when those two confused people get together in a marriage, well, men decide what they want husbands to be, Women decided what they want wives to be, and then if that's not enough, let's add even more confusion to this disastrous recipe. Children somehow today get to decide who their parents will be. Now, is there any confusion as to why there is chaos in the family and ultimately in our society? You should understand now from hearing me that I understand now. I, I get it. Well, how has the government done interfering with the institution of the family. Well, this is what history tells us. This is not up for debate, what I'm going to go over right now. This is history. And you can find this all over. I mean, it's not ancient history. This is history, though. This is what history tells us. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson announced his Great Society proposal. Who's familiar with the Great Society? Not, I encourage you to look it up. It was also called uh, the War on Poverty. The government would create new welfare programs, expand food stamps, give birth to Medicaid and Medicare, fund the arts, and more. So how did the government do redefining family and marriage by playing the role of the father? This is what the government tried to do. Take away the father and be the father in the family. Well, we have over 50 years of evidence, about 55, 56 years of evidence. So let's take a look at the data. And we're going to be speaking of white and black families here. Because in 1993, I purchased a book that I taught you in Sunday school last year about biblical, rediscovering biblical manhood and womanhood, that big blue book that had a big thick book. It addressed a, a large, lot of issues, but it has a, a chapter solely dedicated to hope for the black family. You, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll understand at the end of this time. But speaking of white and black families, not just black families, but white and black families, Larry Elder said this, and by the way, you can look these up when you get this sermon. You can check them on YouTube and watch these interviews and so on. And you want to talk about education for me and, and learning all this stuff. Whew. He says this. He's not a believer, by the way, I don't think. He's just a conservative. The number one problem domestically facing this country is a breakdown of the family. President Barack Obama said that a kid raised without a dad is five times more likely to be poor and commit crimes nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. That is black and white kids. But I want you to specifically listen to me now, because what we're seeing before our very eyes, what we see in the writing and the looting, what you're noticing is primarily black people. Well, why? Well, here we go. Because the breakdown of the family has especially devastated the black community. Sam Jacobs writes this, it's time to take stock in these programs, meaning the great society and the programs they offered, from an objective and evidence-based perspective. When one does that, it is not only clear that the programs have been a failure, in other words, government welfare and what they did, it's not working, but also that they have disproportionately impacted the black community in the United States. The current state of dysfunction in the black community, astronomically high crime rates, very low rates of home ownership, and single motherhood as the norm, are not the natural state of the black community in the United States. 
They weren't in 1964. They are today. But they're closely tied to the role that social welfare programs play. A very smart man, Thomas Sowell, he's a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, laments the same problem disintegrating the black family. I want you to listen to what he's saying here, because this is very, very powerful. He says, the black family, which had survived centuries of slavery and discrimination, began rapidly disintegrating in the liberal welfare state that subsidized unwed pregnancy and changed welfare from an emergency rescue to a way of life. Do you see what he's saying there? What did the black family survive? Slavery and discrimination. What is it not surviving now? The liberal welfare state put in place by Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society in the War on Poverty. They're subsidizing unwed pregnancies, change welfare from an emergency state, emergency rescue to a way of life. In other words, get pregnant and you don't have to have a father in the household. Well, this question was asked to Larry Elder, what can be done about the destruction of the family? Here's his response. Reverse the welfare state. This is a black man saying that. How popular do you think he is in black circles? <laughs> Reverse the welfare state. In 1890, by looking at census reports, a black kid was slightly more likely to be born to a nuclear intact family than a white kid. Even during slavery, a black kid was more likely to be born under his roof with a biological mother and a biological father than today. What happens is we launched this war on poverty in the 1960s where Lyndon Johnson literally set people knocking on doors. And he said, I lived in the 60s. He was a witness to this. This is what Lyndon Johnson did. He sent people out. They knocked on doors, appraising women of their availability to welfare, providing there was no man in the house. And we went from, as the black community, 25% of blacks being born outside of wedlock in 1965 to 75% right now. That was in 2016. And if you look at how much money we spend on welfare, and the lines are parallel between those two. It says, it was a neutron bomb dropped on this country, and not just on the black community, but on people in general. At one time, only about 5% of whites were born out of wedlock. Now, 25% of whites are born outside of wedlock. It is the number one problem in this country, what we've done is economically incentivize women to marry the government. And we allow men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility, and now we have this. And the left has done this. Now, when I say the left, do you know what I'm referring to? It's the Democratic Party. Again, Sam Jacobs comments on the black family in single parenthood, poverty, and crime. Regarding single parenthood, he says this, in the 1950s, 52% of all black children lived with both parents until the age of 17. By the 1980s, that number plummeted to 6%. There's also a wide divide between the percentage of black families in poverty when there's a father present. Among married black families, the poverty rate is 8%. Among black households headed by a single mother, which is the norm today, that number jumps to 37%. He says, there is no better predictor of male criminality than being raised in a fatherless home. 70% of all juvenile offenders in state reform institutions were raised in fatherless homes. This includes 60% of all rapists, 72% of all murderers, and 70% of all long-term inmates. You think the father doesn't matter? We were created that way. You gotta play by God's rules. You know who Denzel Washington is, don't you? You may not know the actor Denzel Washington. I mean, he's probably the most famous black actor of our time. He was asked about incarceration rates among minorities, and this is what he said. He said, I think it's more important to make headway in our own house. By the time the system, means the prison system, comes into play, the damage is done. He says, they're not locking up seven-year-olds. 
I was in Chicago three or four weeks ago in a cab, and we saw these couple of kids on bikes with masks on the side of their heads. And so he asked the cab driver, you know, where are they? And the driver said they're called yummies, little yummies. I said, what? He says, Google little yummies. Little yummy was a murderer. And in this case, he was murdered at 11 years old by a 14, 16-year-old who are doing life now. So you can blame the system, he says, but where was his father? It starts in the house. It starts in the home. Well, they say my father got locked up, but where was his father? Denzel goes on to talk about his three closest friends. He says they did 15 to 25 and one did 28 years. I was the only one of the three that had a father in my life. Even though my parents weren't together, they divorced, but I still had a father who was a gentle man and a good example, and my friends didn't. Now, they can blame the system if they want, but they didn't lock up anyone at seven. He says, we were all doing enough to get locked up at 13 years old, but my parents sent me in another direction, and they didn't have anybody to help them. And they kept doing the same thing they were doing, and eventually the system, meaning prison system, got them. Now, here's my point. Most of the country was enamored with the Black Lives Matter movement, which openly stated their anti-family beliefs. You can't find these anymore on their website because they've gotten so much kickback and are exposed for what this movement really is. They took it down. But I preached on this in July, so I have the evidence. I'm going to go remind you of what they stand for and remind you who embraced the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, make it easier for you. Who didn't embrace the Black Lives Matter movement in our country? Not many organizations. Here's what they write. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. In other words, they want to pull down the leadership of men. We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual. In other words, they gather to put an end to the notion that everybody needs to be heterosexual. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. What's a nuclear family? Husband and a wife and children. By supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially for our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. So they're against the nuclear family. Two parents consisting of a father and a mother and their children. Does any wonder why there are black dads that came out with that movement, Black Dads Matter? Let me be clear. If I haven't been clear enough for you, we are here as a nation because we, the individuals, the government, and yes, parts of the church, and by the way, it's probably the visible church that's doing this, not the invisible church. This is a visible church. We're all here worshiping. I don't know your heart. That's the invisible church. That's the true believers. But the visible church, parts of the visible church, have redefined the family and marriage. And let me get this out of the way. There is no such thing as same-sex marriage in the Bible. That idea is foreign to Scripture. God clearly defines marriage between a male and a female. And because the government stepped outside its authority, redefined marriage, it's in conflict with God, and that only results in judgment. He gives society over to what they want, and inevitably destruction follows. Let me just quote to you from John MacArthur. It will summarize everything. Over the past few generations... We have seen the destructive force processes taking place before our eyes. Contemporary secular society has declared war on the family. Casual sex is expected. Divorce is epidemic. Marriage itself is in decline as multitudes of men and women have decided it's preferable to live together without making a covenant or firmly constituting a family. Adoption is a worldwide plague. And by the way, my wife brought this up to me today. President Trump just declared the month of November as the adoption month, is that correct? Adoption. National Adoption Month, because of the value he places on the family. 
Adoptions are worldwide play. Juvenile delinquency is rampant, and many parents have deliberately abandoned their roles of authority in the family. On the other hand, child abuse in many forms is escalating. Modern and postmodern philosophies have attacked the traditional roles of men and women within the family. Special interest groups and even government agencies seem bent on the dissolution of the traditional family, advocating the normalization of homosexuality, same-sex marriage, and even sterilization programs in some countries. Divorce has been made easy. Tax laws penalize marriage. Government welfare rewards childbirth outside of wedlock. All those trends are direct attacks on the sanctity of the family. So, do you see how important the family is? Let's get down to it then. Where do the political parties stand on the issue of family? Well, concerning the marriage, the 2016 Republican Party, which was also their platform for 2020, states this, word for word, traditional marriage and family based on marriage between one man and one woman is the foundation for a free society and has for millennia been entrusted with rearing children and instilling cultural values. That's what the government's supposed to do, protect the family. Sadly, concerning marriage, this is the 2012 Democratic Party platform, this is what it says. We support marriage equality and support the movement to secure equal treatment under law for same-sex couples. We oppose discriminatory federal and state constitutional amendments and other attempts to deny equal protection of the laws to committed same-sex couples who seek the same respect and responsibilities as other married couples. Now watch this. We support the full repeal of the so-called Defense of Marriage Act. So they are at war against marriage being between a man and a woman. In the past, we support, though, the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act. The Defense of Marriage Act, the federal law in the United States, I said this before, I'll say it again, signed into the legislative by former Democratic President Bill Clinton with bipartisan support on September 21st, 1996. When was that overruled? June 26, 2015, by the U.S. Supreme Court, a liberal court decision in Obergefell versus Hodges. So, in light of that 2012 party platform, blatant right there, 2016 party platform, the Democratic Party states this. Democrats applaud last year's decision by the Supreme Court that recognized the LGBT people, like other Americans, have the right to marry the person they love. Don't we sum it up. It's a repeated song I keep going over every Sunday, it seems like. Republicans believe marriage is a union between a man and a woman. Every child deserves both a man or a mom and a dad. Democrats, on the other hand, embrace the 2015 Obergefell Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage. You really think you're going to heal the soul of America, the Democratic Party, when you've destroyed or are destroying the very foundation on which secular and conservative people believe is the foundation and the building block of society? Now, six weeks ago, I started this sermon series entitled Kingdom Voting. What was my purpose? to educate the congregation on the issues that the Bible addresses in this election, because the Bible doesn't address every issue in this election. But I began with the topic of biblical government. I'm going to go over real briefly every, all of the six sermons to give you a bigger picture. The first one was called biblical government. What's that? How do we define that? To exercise justice and righteousness by restraining evil and by bringing order to society, which in turn brings good to society. That was a sermon. That was followed by this sermon, Republican, Democrat, or Kingdom Independent. I quoted Jeremiah 29.7, Seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord its behalf. For its welfare, you will find your welfare. The Bible tells us that the citizens of God's kingdom have a responsibility to seek the welfare of this country. One way we do this in America is by way of voting. Now, which policies of the prospective candidates and their parties will bring the blessings of God? That's our responsibility. 
And we took a look in that sermon at the Republican and Democratic Party platforms. That was followed by a sermon on abortion, pro-choice or pro-life. I quoted Jeremiah 32, verses 28, 33, and 35. Verse 35 says this, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind, they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. In that sermon, I told you this. The result of the nation turning from God, which is what Jeremiah is confronting his people, they turn from God. The inevitable result is this, the devaluing of life. That inevitably leads to the murder of innocent children, which brings what? Divine judgment. The Democratic Party is a proudly, proudly, proudly pro-choice party. There's the homosexuality issue. That was the next sermon. Went through Romans 1, 18, 24, and 26, and 27. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I'm not going to go over that verse. It's too long. But you get the picture here. I said this. God abandons, and this is his wrath of abandonment that our country is in now, abandons a nation that rejects him. He gives them over to sexual sin. A sexual revolution is followed by what? Homosexual revolution, which is followed by what? A depraved mind. Homosexuality, and I give you all the historical data, has always been seen as a type of sin that brings divine judgment. So abortion brings divine judgment. Homosexuality brings divine judgment. Sadly, the Democratic Party proudly supports, advocates, and aggressively pushes for homosexuality. The very things that are bringing divine judgment, the Democratic Party I'm learning stands for. And I know that some of you are learning because you've told me in the Wednesday Night Bible says, I didn't know this stuff. That was followed by the religious freedom sermon. I quoted 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, that those who practice homosexuality don't inherit the kingdom of God. Practicing homosexuals do not inherit the kingdom of God. To share that message with the LGBTQ plus community is increasingly dangerous in today's society. The Democratic Party is sponsoring a bill. What's it called? The Equality Act that punishes anyone who discriminates against the LGBTQ plus community, which would make it almost illegal to share the message of hope and forgiveness, the gospel, to those in bondage to the horrible sin of homosexuality. Then this sermon, Family First. What brings the judgment of God or the curse on the land in society? You redefine the family. You, you, you attack the family. The last verse of the Old Testament Malachi 4, 6, God will strike the land with a curse because the family is in chaos. And when a culture has failed families, the culture suffers. The Democratic Party supports, as I just read to you, redefining the family and marriage that results in family chaos and confusion, which puts the nation at risk for divine judgment. It, I mean, I, I, you can't get any clearer than that. But I want to end, I have to end with this. I can't end negative because this is all depressing. Let's talk about the sovereignty of God. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says this, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Daniel four seventeen: the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The only reason why in our lifetime, I believe, the most stunning upset in, in American political history was what happened in 2016. It only happened because it was God's plan. I want to end with this from Wayne Grudem. He writes, In the summer of 2008, I realized the truth of these verses in a new way. Psalm 22 and Daniel 4. I had been speaking at a conference in Rome, and the day before it ended... I was standing on the roof of a hotel that was on a hill overlooking the entire city of Rome. As I gazed at that incredible city, I realized that this was a city that had ruled the known world for more than five centuries. Emperors had walked those streets, 
Armies had marched out from Rome and returned victorious. Laws had gone forth from Rome to govern many nations. It was all under the sovereign, invisible providence of God, working out his purposes in history. For in the year 4 BC, the emperor Caesar Augustus issued a decree from the city. You remember this? Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, what happened? The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to who? Jesus. Her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Caesar Augustus and his palace in Rome, along with the mighty Roman armies whose soldiers began to enforce that decree, had no idea that God in heaven was using them to fulfill his plan. He thought he ruled the entire civilized world. The Republican Party, the Democratic Party, whoever wins this election, do they really rule? No, they do not. But far above him, reigning eternally, Wayne Grudem says, was the Lord who rules over the nations, Psalm 22, the verse I just read. So it was throughout all ages, and so it is today. Although God has allowed much evil to continue in the world without yet bringing it into judgment, he is still ruling over the rulers and the destinies of nations. Over 92 million people as of this morning have already voted. This is a tumultuous time in our country. I've spoken to police officers or to a police officer and I, you are hearing it as well. And you're probably the 60% that feel like you don't want to know what is going to happen on no, November 4th. Because November 3rd, if you do know elections, what will happen on the 4th? Protests, rioting, looting, and so on. The police I've spoken to, they don't have any time off now. They're all there trying to control what they think and are afraid is going to happen. Rest in the sovereignty of God. He is in control. So what I want you to do is that very point right there. Trust in God's sovereignty. I know you've probably already voted, but if anyone's watching that hasn't voted, maybe this one will help you, educate you so you can make a a decision under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I wish, I think, I don't know what, 30, maybe 50 years ago, the Democratic Party now would not, John F. Kennedy would be a Republican compared to where the Democratic Party is now. I wish I didn't have to make this, it's so one-sided Republican, but that is the reality of where we are. And the reality is this as well, for any of the people that are watching, that are, are, are black, the progressive socialist left of our society does not want to change anything that happened in the great society. They want people to be addicted to government welfare. Well, why? Because that will push their agenda of a larger government, which leads to socialism. They're not going to make it any better. And for the black community, and there aren't any in here. But they are hurting. Where are all the, the, the rioting that's going on? Where does that happen? Inner cities. Who's suffering? It's not anybody in here. It is the black community. God loves all of us. And so pray that that would end. Pray that, that we would listen, that, that we would get rid of this, these welfare programs that are, are, the government's replaced the role of the father. Do you see that? That's what welfare has done, and it's been devastating to the black community. And to a lesser extent, the brown and the white community. And now you know these things, and my guess is in 2024, it'll all be the same, because as Jesus said, the poor you always have with you, you will now know, have a background from which 
to evaluate four years and see where the Lord would lead you to vote. Let's pray. And we'll close with a song. Father, we come to you and we just thank you for the sermon series, as difficult and as contentious as it is. We need to know. We pray for our country. We ask for your blessing to be poured on it. And I understand that you're only going to bless us if we return to you. And I pray that you would put leaders in positions to where we can be blessed. I pray that the men in this congregation would step up if they're failing their families, act out their God-given role, that we can build strong families to be a blessing to society. Lord, bless our families. And all God's people said, amen. We close with a song and then have a quietly